All right. Okay, here we go. Everyone ready to listen? To start with, I have a picture to show you. Are you ready to see a picture? Here's a picture for you to look at. This is a picture of a really old building. It was built almost 2,000 years ago, actually shortly after the time that Jesus was on the earth. This building is in the city of Rome. I actually saw this building about a year ago, and uh, it's a pretty neat building. Does anybody know what this building is called? You do? I would be amazed. Do you know what it's called? There used to be a bank. Well, it looks like it could be an old bank. That's actually a really good thought. Yeah. So this building, this building is called the Pantheon. Pantheon. The Pantheon was built as a temple of all the gods. What? A temple of all the gods. Now, this tells us that they believed in more than one god, right? And you know what? There are still people today who believe in more than one God. And it's possible that you too might wonder sometimes if there's more than one God. Have you ever wondered if there are more gods than the one we worship? Maybe. When you have questions like that and you want to know the answer, where's a good place to look for the answer to that? Yeah, in the Bible. That's really good. I'm glad you guys know that. The Bible is our source of absolute truth. Everything written in the Bible is completely true all the time. So it's a good place to go when we have questions like that. And so in our Bible passage for today that Pastor Jeremy will be preaching out of, we're going to read that there is one God. So everybody hold up one finger and say, one God. One God. Good, that's it. There are no more, just one God. That's all. In fact, the passage says that all the other idols, all the false gods, aren't even gods at all. They're not even real. They're just made up. And so we read this throughout the Bible. Yeah. We read this throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, we read that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is one God who is Lord over everything. He is great and mighty, and none compare to him. So the next verse in Deuteronomy then gives us instruction for how we are to relate to this one God. Verse 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So you are to love the one and only God with all that you are, with your whole life, with everything that you have. So while others may believe in more than one God, we know it is true because we have the Bible, that there is only one God, and he alone is worthy of our love and worship. So everyone hold up one finger and say, one God. Good. So you remember that. Okay, and you can go back and have a seat. Thanks for coming up, everybody. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, Paul, as you remember, is addressing questions sent to him by the church in Corinth. And so we see in verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning, 
Here they're going to be asking about food offered to idols, whether it's uh, lawful to eat it or not. And Paul takes the answer from the eternal perspective of you need to do what's best for others considering their eternal well-being, which is very different than how we think about food, isn't it? How we eat food is all about what it does to your body here and now. Uh, Paul didn't really answer that a bit. It's, it was about what food is going to do for people in eternity and especially towards others. So he's going to talk about love. Uh, love has everything to do with it. And love rightly ordered begins with loving God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about loving God here today. And next week we'll talk more about the food side of it. And so just begin with a question. How's your love for God? How are you loving God? How is your heart, affection, attention, obedience, rejoicing in? How is your love for God? Because if we get that right, then as Augustine said, love God and do what you will. If your affections are rightly ordered, then love God and do what you will. Let me read chapter 8. I'll read the whole of it and then pray from Psalm 119 and then get into a bit of explanation of the entire chapter. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak brother is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus... Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, help our hearts to stand in awe of your words, to rejoice at your word like finding a great treasure. Teach us to love your law, to praise your righteous rules. God, give grace to those who love your law, for nothing can make your, us stumble. God, we hope in your salvation, and so we love your commands. 
Teach our souls to keep your testimonies, to love them exceedingly, because all of our ways are before you, and we will come before you one day. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, this chapter is written in response. They're asking questions about whether it's legitimate, lawful, Christian to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. And so again, the letter of 1 Corinthians is somewhat of a Q&A. They are um, doing something good in this. They're asking the inspired apostle questions about what it looks like to live before Christ. And here again, I want to encourage you, everything in your life matters before God, even what you do and don't eat. But the reason it matters is often very different than what we think. So they ask even something about, should we eat meat, sacrifice to idols? Very small aspect of their life, not that big. And Paul's answer, though, isn't about diet, isn't about bodily concerns. It's about eternal concerns. So Paul takes up this question about eating meat, sacrifice to idols, meat, sold at the local butcher shops, would end up in a display case via an altar offered up to a false god or demon or goddess. Can a Christian eat that? That's the question. Paul's answer is very pastoral. It aims not just at the right answer, which would be yes, of course. Idols are nothing. There's only one God. Eat whatever you want without any questions of conscience. So as Christians, we know that all foods are yes and amen in Christ. And so this goes back to uh, Acts, where Peter had a vision, and God told them to eat that which would have been unclean to them. And, and Peter's response is one of conscience. No, I can't eat that. I've never eaten that. And God says three times, no, go ahead and eat. No, go ahead and eat. No, go ahead and eat. And so, therefore, all foods for Christians are declared clean. And so, have at it, is Paul's answer. Eat it. But, he also says, no. Now, you all are had have parents or do have parents, and parents often do this. Uh, your question is often yes and no. Yes, you can eat it, but no, you can't. The no here is according to Christian love. The no here is if you are eating something that would cause somebody who came from a background of worshiping idols to eat that meat as if it were idolatry, as if it were worship of a false god, then no, you shouldn't eat it. No, you should set aside your freedom for the sake of the conscience of the weaker brother. Okay? We'll get into more of that next week. Um, This week, I want to focus on verse 3 and 6 quite a bit. So yes and no is Paul's answer. But the yes and no stems first from love for God. If you get love for God straight, then all of these other loves will be rightly ordered. But if your love for God isn't straight, if God is not your first and chief love, then your other loves will be disordered. And so the disorder in the Corinthian church, that is lovelessness for their brothers and sisters in Christ, stems firstly for a disordered love for God. All right? So, um, I'll skip that for next week. So the point is that everything that God has given us is to, you, to be used as love. And love here in verse 1 is defined as building others up. This includes what we know. So the life of a Christian is largely, or not maybe largely, it is uh, much of the life of the mind, what you know. 
Knowing the right thing is true, but so is doing the right thing. And so Christianity encompasses it all. It encompasses how you think and what you think, and then it encompasses what you do. So right knowledge is good and godly, but so is the right use of that knowledge in love. And there are people, uh, as Christians, you included, who often fall on one end of the spectrum or the other. Some really like to emphasize the truth side of it. They just care about right doctrine, getting the doctrine right. But sometimes they're very harsh to people in it. They're unkind. They're unloving, maybe even legalistic. On the other side, you have people who aren't as concerned with right doctrine, but are concerned with right practice, right love. It's all about doing the right thing, loving the right way. They're not so concerned with right knowing. And here Paul is going to put both of them together very nicely. You can't be a loving person if you don't believe the truth. And you can't be a loving person if you don't love others very well. Both are necessary and needed here. So Paul begins by quoting what they're writing and agreeing with it, but then rebuking them. All of us possess this knowledge, right? We all know that it's going to be okay to eat meat to idols. And yet this knowledge puffs you up. If anyone thinks you know something, you really don't know anything. What does Paul mean there? I, I think we get what he means there, right? This isn't too difficult for you and I. If you're the kind of person who's a know-it-all, if you're the kind of person who always knows the right answers and is more than willing to show off your knowledge, if you're the kind of person who uses your knowledge to exalt yourself before others, who uses your knowledge to make yourself look better before others, you really don't know the first thing. If knowledge is to gain admiration for yourself, if knowledge is used to show others how great you are and how little they are, then Paul's saying you really don't know. Because you, you don't understand what God has given you that knowledge for. There is a God-ordained purpose for this knowing. And what they know is right. See that here? They get it. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols. You could have a, a ribeye come from the altar Satan himself, throw it on the grill and enjoy it to the glory of God. And they know that. They got it right, but they got it so wrong. They know the truth, but they don't know it at all. So Paul rebukes them for this. Now, one of the unfortunate mistakes we make with this is we think then that Paul is saying knowing really doesn't matter. That his right doctrine really doesn't matter. We, um, in our day, there is a growing divide between kind of the intellectual elites and the also-rans, those who kind of reject the life of the mind, intellectual pursuits. I think it's an unfortunate but understandable impact in our day that as we, in our culture, continue to see the kind of uber elites marginalizing more and more the ivory tower egghead, uber important political types who 
don't think you can, um, I don't know, like they determine how far apart the studs in your bathroom wall should be spaced, right? Our lives are completely managed by them. They, they don't think we can live without their deep and important understanding of all things. One of the unfortunate impacts of that is that kind of the regular flannel-wearing, packer-cheering, deer-killing, gun-toting, Northwoods, hodeg types think that the problem is knowing, think that the problem is any kind of intellectualism at all. And so we kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't care to learn. We don't care to have more and deeper understanding. And we can become as prideful as those who know something and are not knowing something. You can be prideful in having great and high knowledge, and you can be just as prideful in being ignorant. And so Paul isn't here undercutting knowing. He's not undercutting learning. The problem isn't what they know. The problem is in using what they know for 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 bad purposes. The problem is lovelessness. The problem is pride. The problem is there's some big heads in the church in Corinth who know the truth and use it to beat everybody else over the head with it. The problem is lovelessness. They're puffed up. They're people who are full of themselves. They're often very insecure and yet they have decent brain power and they use that to put themselves above others. So Paul again agrees that in Christ we can eat and drink what we want without questions of conscience. True, right. But that freedom we have in Christ is to be used as a benefit for the growth of others. So please note that right away in verse 1. That your and my first question in regards to how we live is whether or not it's contribute to the upbuilding of others in Christ. So this is what I love about Christianity. It's very simple. It's very simple. There is one law. It's love. That's it. You as a husband should be evaluating what you are and aren't going to do based on, is this going to help my wife grow in Jesus Christ? And vice versa. You as a church member, the sole criteria that you evaluate your life in regards to the other saints at Pine Grove is, is this going to help them become more like Jesus or not? It's daylight savings, and I'm preaching to the choir here, but is going to be dragging my rear end out of bed with an hour's less sleep? Should I stay home or should I go? And your thought process should be, what's going to be best to the other people at Pine Grove? As I sing songs, my demeanor, my body posture, my facial expression, the volume, what's going to be best for the other people around me? <laughs> right. Take care of some of you. This is the sole criteria here. 
maybe to use an example, these Corinthians are learning a lot in Christ and they're learning that you can eat whatever you want and sometimes like a little boy who gets his first hammer, everything becomes a nail. The car door becomes a nail. The tile floor becomes a nail. The sister's toe becomes a nail. And so these Corinthians are immature in their loving, even though they might be mature in their knowledge. It's purposeless. It's not constructive. And so we need to use what we know rightly. So young men and young women, as you grow up learning, maturity means that you learn how to use what you know and the skills you have for good purposes. So this is true in the church. As you learn new things, as you come to new levels of understanding, you need to patiently learn how to use that for the good of others to the glory of God. So for instance, let's say you're a parent and you begin to learn that you really do need to discipline your child for sin. Often what will happen is a young man or a young woman learning that they do need to actually spank their child, that day their child's going to get 30 of them. Right? Because they got to implement their new knowledge. But it's not wise and it's not loving. You're giving your child whiplash. You want to show everybody how profound is your new understanding. And so you don't use it wisely. Or in our church, we have children who are being schooled in in different manners. Some are schooled at government school. Some are homeschooled. Some are private schooled. Some are online schooled. Some are a tossed salad of all of it. Why are you getting this kind of an education? Let's say some of you are getting a really good education, a thoroughly Christian education, a rigorous education. You're reading all the classics. You're learning different languages. Why is God giving you this education? What for? Is it so that you can boast and look down on others who aren't getting it? Why is God giving you what you're being given? What for? It's to use for the good of others. It's to use for the good of others. Same thing could be with musical skill. Why is God giving you what you're given? To use an everyday example, some of you are taller and stronger than others. What for? Why? Big brothers... What are you bigger and stronger than your little sister for? Why? Is it so that you can hold her down until she screams? Or is it so that you can defend her from somebody who's picking on her? What for? That's the principle behind this. God has given you what he's given you, your skills, your knowledges, your gifts, your talents, your strengths, your weaknesses, in order to be put to use for the sake of others in his church for his glory. That's it. That's it. That's what's going on here. But instead of them doing that, 
they're using their profound knowledge to serve themselves and to puff themselves up. And Paul even says here that they're actually destroying others eternally for this. But where does it begin? Where does this kind of disordered self-love begin? Where does somebody begin to use their freedom to eat meat in such a way that it destroys somebody eternally? Can there be anything more wicked than that? Where does that begin? Where does that kind of disorderedness come from? Where does it start? I think this is why in verse 3, he just seems to just totally switch and go, but if anyone loves God... You might get it. You need to be more loving. You need to put what God has given you to use more for others. But how? Where do I begin? You begin with loving God. You begin with loving God. This really is the reason you and I have existence. This is the reason... You and I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we can love God. This is the beginning of all things. In the beginning, God. Delight yourself in the Lord. Love God with all all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Seek first the kingdom of God. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. The very last thing in the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The center, the beginning, the ending, the chief thing, the most important and central reality in our lives is to be loving God with all that we are, seeking after God, living in the presence of God, being all about God. Notice here, Paul isn't saying that they don't love. The Holy Spirit isn't here saying to you, you just got to be better at loving. They are actually very loving. But their love is disordered. They love themselves. They love the accolades. They love the applause. They love putting themselves above others. They're very loving. They just love themselves. And isn't that you? Aren't you just all about you? I mean, don't you just want you to be loved? Don't you just want it to be about you? Don't you want life to be about you? Don't you want others to see how good you are and how important you are and how much you know and how much you do? Isn't that why you do everything? Isn't that why Facebook exists, for goodness sake? Right? So that you can show everybody else you. And you can have people comment and how good you are and how how bad it is for you and blah, blah. I mean, isn't it all just about you? You love. You just love you. Well, why does the mean preacher keep using a second person pronoun? Why does he say you? Because Paul does. You destroy your brother's. But if anyone loves God, so this is about disordered love. That's the problem. You see, Satan, Satan is not um, creative at all. He can't make anything new. He just takes what God has made 
and causes you to love things in a wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. That's, that's his trick. That's all he can do. That's what your flesh does. It just works inside of you to begin to love things as if they're God and they're not God. And it disorders everything. And all that Paul is coming back to is saying, just love one thing. Just love God. Just do that. So Paul's solution is just to rightly order your love. To call you back to your highest and first love. Love for God. Love for God is the sun around which all of the orbits or planets orbit. If you could seek to replace the sun at the center of the solar system, everything else dies. Everything else goes away. If you do not love God as your highest and most, all of your other loves will become perverted. How can anyone not feel the rebuke that the Lord Jesus gives the church in Ephesus that they have lost their first love? That's what Paul's getting at here. And look at the fruit of this love. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Doesn't that just give you a little joy, that phrase, to be known by God? I mean, doesn't that give you a thrill? To be known by God here doesn't mean that when you finally start really loving him, he comes, becomes suddenly aware of your presence. Oh, there you are. I was wondering where you went. This isn't about like awareness of you. Knowing here is family. It's to be his. It's intimacy with the father. It's communion. It's protection. It's safe giving. It means God is for you. It means that he has covenanted him himself as a shepherd to keep you eternally safe and secure in him. It means that he bends everything in the universe for your good. And so, brothers and sisters, love him. Be willing to be humbled by how little you actually do love him. Isn't it? pitiful that you and I love him so little that we do too often give him so little affection and attention that so many other things um, draw our love now, I'm not saying you don't love him I know you do you're here that's why you come here because you do love him that's why you do pray. That's why you do seek him. That's why you listen to songs that sing about him. Because you do love him. Paul is here urging us to love him more. Now Paul then says, of course, eating of food offered to idols is nothing. We'll get into more next week because idols are really nothing. And why are others, idols like there's only one God. God is but one and so verse 6 has been really a delight all week long. Let me just read it again. Look at verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There, Paul just gives you a brief verse of the 
highest and most wondrous reality of God. Love God. Who is God? Here he is. There's one God, Father, creator of all things, even you. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, even you. This is God. And there is no joy like knowing this God. There is no delight in thinking about who this God is revealed in Holy Scripture. I think if you could really go into this verse and think about it for any length of time, your heart would, would warm. If you would just spend 10 minutes reading and rereading and thinking about the words in this verse, you would find your love for God um, increased, warmed up, strengthened. I've been thinking as I was reading this verse about all of the people in the Bible who suffered off awfully. Thinking about like Moses having to be out in the wilderness shepherding sheep because he murdered a man. And yet that 40 years where he met God for the first time, I think he'd go through it all again because he met God. Thinking about Job. Loss of his health, of his children, of his livelihood. And at the end of the book, he meets God. And I think if you were to ask him, if you could do it all again and meet God the same way, he'd say, yes. Because I got to meet God. Jacob would wrestle with God again and have his hip put out of joint and limp for the rest of his days if he could wrestle with God again. Because God is worth it. Didn't Jesus Christ confess that it was for the joy set before him, the joy of being resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of Father, that for the joy of that, it was worth going through the cross. That if you were to ask Jesus, would you endure this again if you got to ascend to the Father's right hand, would you do it again? Yes and yes and yes and yes, because I get God. That's what it is for a Christian. It doesn't matter what happens to us so long as we get God. And if he has to take us through anything, whatever it is, any trial, any sorrow, any suffering, any loss, we'll go through it if we get God. That's what's going on here. Why? Because this is God, one God, Father, creator of all things. And you know him and are loved by him. So love him, love this God. Well, who is he? He's only one. Our world loves to tell you how unique you are. Like, there's only one of you, and thank God. It's not true, though. You know that, right? The one thing you and I are not is unique. (laughs) There's like a couple hundred thousand other people who are just like you. You're not unique. Sorry. You know who is unique? God. There's none other like him. And you know him and get to love him. And isn't it sweet that here Paul says, he is one God, the Father. Isn't that delightful? Not one God, the judge. Not one God, the creator. One God, who? Father. What is implied in that verse, or in that word? Adoption. Gospel hope through Jesus Christ. This is the God in heaven above who selected you to be his child. Love him. Love the Father. 
creator of all things, from whom are all things. He's the source. He's the beginning of all things. Who else do you know like that? Look at what he's made. Go drill a hole in a maple tree. This is what God makes. Go watch a musical performance and just behold what God has made. Look at a leaf. Look up at a blue sky. Just behold the wonders that God has made. It all begins with him. Nothing exists apart from him. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. In the Greek, it's much simpler than for whom we all exist. It just simply says that we in him. When it, when it kind of separates us out from all of other creation, it says everything exists from God, and then it, and then it just pauses there and separates out us, and we in him. It elevates the dignity of humans far above everything else. We are unique among all of his other creations. Isn't that confusing? You're not unique, but you're unique. There is great dignity. This is why abortion is so absolutely, grossly disgusting. This is why abuse and rape and all, it's just so gross. It's so awful. Because we in him, this is who we are to love. The one in whom we exist. The one in whom we exist. But he's, he's not here talking about all of humanity. He's talking about his children here. We are in him. We're so united to him. We're so in communion with him that, that he can't bring up any other word but in. We're so closely tied to him. Intimately fashioned to him that the only preposition is in. We're in him. And one Lord Jesus Christ. This is a statement of allegiance, isn't it? You and I are to have only one ruler, one sovereign, one king. And he doesn't care whether or not you vote for him. He's not asking. He is. He is the one Lord over all things. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He rules supremely over everything. One Lord. To be a Christian is to confess this. You cannot be a Christian without Jesus being your Lord. And I mean functionally your Lord. You can say it all you want all day long. Functionally your Lord. Does he rule you? Does he rule you? What else rules you? That's what we're talking about here. To get your life ordered is to... Be ruled by him above all others, to love him above all others. Now here, God, the, the Holy Spirit is not saying here that God the Father is God and Jesus is just Lord. He's not here denying the divinity of Jesus Christ. In fact, what he's doing here, which is really wonderful, he's holding up the absolute equality of the Father and the Son. The Father is the one from whom everything exists. The, the Son is the one through whom everything exists. They are absolutely equal and yet they're distinct. And so here we see the doctrine of the Trinity. We see that God is one and three. And we are to love this mysterious, awesome, triune, singular God. 
And Jesus Christ, the Lord, is the one through whom are all things. That is, God the Father is the source of all things, but all things come through Christ. This is true of both creation of our salvation. Don't forget that our salvation is a work of new creation. He makes you new. I think that's what he's talking about here even more than just regular creation. He's talking about creating you anew in him. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. How did that happen? Because God the Father called you, selected you, and God the Son went to the cross and died in your place to make you new. And all that he's saying here is love him. Just love him. That's it. Just love him. That's it. That's all that's in this text. Just love him. Repent of all of your other higher loves than him. Repent of your religious pretensions where you have to make it seem like you have all the answers and you know everything and it's just exhausting. Just get rid of that. Just love him. Make it real simple here, brothers and sisters. Just love him. Young children, like this is it for you. Just love God. Love his son. Don't be so distracted by all these other things. Now, next week, what we'll get into is, there's this Christian song, I don't know if I'll get the lyrics right, that when we love him, kind of the things of the world grow strangely dim. You've heard that song? It's really not true. When you love God first and foremost, everything else becomes alive. One of the real lies of Christianity is that you have to, like, get rid of everything. And just love God. That you have to stop using things of this world. You have to stop enjoying snowmobiles. And you have to stop eating good food. And you have to stop living a good life to be a Christian. You have to take on a kind of a monkish removal of all things. And go about in sack and sackcloth and ashes and whipping yourself or something. It's not true. When you love God most, then you can really snowmobile for the first time. When you love God most, then you can really play your piano. When you love God most, you can really enjoy the food that you so much enjoy for the first time. When your loves get rightly ordered, all your other loves actually become enjoyable and good and useful. When you as a dad or a mom, really love God first and you can really love your kids. So start with loving God. Start with loving God, brothers and sisters. Love him with all that you are. And, and be ruthless. Some of you love other things more than him. You really do. You put so many things in front of him. Be ruthless in rooting them out. Leave them no quarter. Destroy them. Love God. Let's pray. How would you teach us this?
Would you teach us to rightly order our loves? We know, we know, we know, I know, I know my own heart. I know that this is absolutely impossible in myself. We are totally powerless to rightly order our loves apart from your grace. And so, God, we call on you, the God of all grace, to patiently teach us to love you above all others, which is really to love all others. Would you please, oh God, give us a taste, give us a heart to love you more than everything else in this world so that we might rightly enjoy everything else in this world. And so God, help us. Help us, please. There is no love like love for you. There is no love. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no comfort like loving you more than all others. And so God, help us, please. We are so easily persuaded away from it. So protect us from the lies of the evil one and our own flesh in this world. Please, oh God, help us to love you above all others. Help us even now in song. In Jesus' name, amen.